You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, first broadcast on the 18th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. And good morning to you all. We're live from London and you're listening to Monocle on Sunday. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up in the next 60 minutes, my guest Latika Burke here in London will be dissecting the week's main stories. Latika, what has caught your eye in particular? Good morning, Andrew. We'll be looking at the sustainability of using the military to cover for strikes, uh, exploring the week's only talked about topic, Harry and Meghan, and examining the reasons for the revival of the ice cream parlour across the UK. We'll also have Juliet Lindley joining us from Zurich. Yes, so I've got uh, Taiwan pressuring neutral Switzerland to be less neutral vis-a-vis Beijing. It's cake time for the Pope as he turns 86 at the Vatican and pressure is mounting on the British Museum to return its large collection of Parthenon sculptures. And we'll receive last-minute magazine and book gift ideas from Hani Balassin, owner of the Parisian concept store Bonjour Jacob. Plus, we will speak to our editorial director, Tyler Brule, in Tokyo about a peculiarly Japanese scandal. It's the 18th of December 2022, live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday. This is Monocle on Sunday. I'm Andrew Muller. And first of all, we are crossing to Tokyo to speak to Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brule. Uh, Tyler, I believe you are caught up in something of a national scandal. I am, and uh, good morning, Andrew. Indeed, I'm a little bit south of Tokyo, in Mishima, which is, uh, as the Shinkansen should normally go, uh, is about a 50-minute journey from Tokyo Station. Uh, but in my case, it's taken over four hours. And as you've said, uh, completely a scandal because Japan is a nation where they measure train delays nationally on average in seconds, uh, as you know, and uh, certainly not in minutes and not in hours. Uh, so one of the main lines uh, between uh, between Tokyo and uh, and Osaka, there was a, a problem uh, not too far from Nagoya, uh, and this resulted in, in really a complete meltdown of the, the Shinkansen system this afternoon. Uh, it is extraordinary because, as you were saying, Tyler, and I think we, we need to reinforce this, this simply does not happen. I was looking into this earlier and trying to get uh, some perspective into it and discovered the already shocking news that last year's average Shinkansen delay was 54 seconds, uh, which was up on 30 seconds in 2020. Clearly, the whole system is just unravelling. Uh, well, clearly, um, <laughs> I, I can't imagine what's going to happen to... At 2022 bonuses uh, at uh, JR Central, uh, Japan Rail Central, who runs this part of uh, the line. Uh, not, not to mention, you know, this is a country which still has the death penalty. So, <laughs> what's going to happen to, to certain ex- executives? It, it is, it is quite remarkable. And yeah, we don't really know the reason. There, there's some of the speculation that it's been high winds. Uh, it was certainly an electrical issue with some overhead lines. The Shinkansen, of course, is, is uh, electrically powered. Um, yeah, and, and all kinds of rumors that, you know, uh, it, it could, could even be a hack, uh, but it doesn't look like it because, you know, again, this is such a major story, and we were corresponding before we went on air, that you know, they already had helicopters up uh, <laughs> over the, the rail lines, to, to news choppers, that is, uh, to actually see what happened, uh, and it, it, you, you did see 
a couple of men in uh, sort of mint green jumpsuits, uh, very James Bond style, uh, with uh, with ladders, doing something with some some dangling ladders. But it, it is kind of remarkable that this type of thing simply does not happen here. And I'm I'm at the station. But this is you know maybe a case for also why you need sort of bureaucracy, why you still need people at stations because. They now have quite an orderly system where when you get off the train, there's uh, men with, with little tiny stamps, and they are um, they're refunding uh, everyone's uh, train fares as well. I mean, this is probably going to be uh, greeted with some incredulity, certainly by our listeners here in Britain, Tyler, the idea that a delayed train is a national news story. Indeed. <laughs> um, I think probably to, to listeners in many corners of the world, uh, maybe not just the UK, uh, Andrew, but uh, it, it is remarkable because this is, it is a point of national pride that Shinkansen uh, is, is really, you know, and you, if you spend time in Japan, it's, it's amazing even just going to the station this afternoon, how they almost fetishize the sort of the wedge-shaped uh, noses uh, of, of these trains. Uh, it, it's really part of the, the overall iconography, not just of the various Japanese rail systems uh, that have a Shinkansen line of their own, uh, but also of just Japan's infrastructure uh, in general. So I think there'll be a lot of soul-searching as to why this happened, uh, particularly at a time when this is not like mass mobilization yet. Japan will still be working all of this week, but companies are starting to wind down. Company uh, parties uh, will be in full flow this week, and, and come Friday... The country will be on a mass mobilization. One thing they are saying, uh, Japan will not be back. We've heard so many countries reporting that travel is back or beyond uh, 2019 levels. Uh, Right now, what I saw this morning, the Omiuri Shimbun, one of the newspapers of record in Japan, they're saying it will only be back at about sort of 70, just a little above 70%. And that is probably one of the curious things, Andrew, is that this country is not quite back to normal. So as much as we've sort of heard that Yes, it's easier to get in and out. You still have a ticker when you go to the NHK's website, when you go to a lot of the other newspapers. There's still the COVID ticker, and I think a lot of countries got rid of the COVID ticker a long time ago. And one thing is, you know, there's still masks, I would say. I was trying to do a measure yesterday. Just being outdoors, 98% of people still wear masks outside here. Uh, We should move on a bit maybe and talk about what brings you to Tokyo on this particular trip, a a country obviously you know well and have been visiting regularly, uh, well, frequently, in fact, before the pandemic. Well, in part it was uh, the continuation of of Monocle's, uh, well, both in-house, but I would also say uh, client year-end Christmas party tour, so we were... (laughs) Uh, I mean, you will recall, Andrew, you picked up uh, a, an award, uh, almost two awards, uh, this week in, in London, and uh, and 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 so, and so it goes. We we moved on to Zurich. Uh, we had a great party on Friday. Uh, our James Chambers from Hong Kong also joined. Hasn't seen him for ages. It was a bit of a, a mini Asia party, which was which was wonderful. And then, of course, just catching up on on clients uh, before scampering back uh, to to your side of the world uh, on Tuesday. Uh, and just finally, Tyler, to, to go back to where we came in, how disrupted has your journey been? How are you going to be able to get where you were going, or, or have you now arrived? Yeah, I've, well, I've almost arrived. As I said, I'm just at uh, Mishima Station, uh, which is you know, a, a main station, obviously, on, on the Shinkansen line south of Tokyo. Um, I could take a regional train. happens that a friend uh, who decided not to take the train will be pulling up very, very shortly, and we will continue our journey 
down to a very nice Rio can in on the Izu Peninsula. Actually, there was just one more follow-up thought, because I think it is something that a lot of people will be asking them when they reflect on the idea of a, a, a country where a delayed train is national news. In the time you've spent in Japan, what is it you think that makes Japan different in that respect? Basically, what I'm asking here on behalf of the rest of the world is, why can't we have things as nice as that? <laughs> um, well, this, it, is, it is quite remarkable because I was thinking, you know, I don't know, I've been to Japan probably well over 100 times over the past two decades. I've never, ever, ever experienced a train delay, ever. Like, not even in that sort of 30 seconds zone, the trains always run perfectly on time. So to be caught up in this at a time when it was a bit of a compressed schedule, I was a little bit surprised, not really annoyed because it was sort of you know, reasonably, reasonably well managed. Um, communication could have been a bit better, but no matter. I, listen, I think, I think part of it is, you know, Japan is a monoculture and you have people going in the same direction. Um, and I think oftentimes this is overlooked or maybe it's not such a fashionable concept today to have monocultures. But I think one of the reasons why Japan has functioned so well for so long, particularly when it comes to infrastructure, when it, when it comes to keeping things on time, Andrew, is that everyone is literally going in the same direction. Uh, and, and that is, you know, it's frequently sort of, you know, when management consultants look at it, they look at a variety of other things as to why it functions. But I think also when you have everyone who's culturally the same, uh, there is an understanding in terms of mission. And I think that's why, it functions, at least up until today. Tyler Brule, Monocle's editorial director, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to Monocle on Sunday, and let's now bring in today's panellists. I'm joined here in the studio by Latika Burke, journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, uh, and from our studio in Zurich uh, by Juliet Lindley, a journalist, broadcaster, and a former Vatican correspondent. Uh, and Juliet, let's start with you, and the, the, the Vatican angle will come up, but first, uh, you wanted to talk about about Taiwan. Um, and Taiwan's foreign minister, Joseph Wu, whose voice will be familiar to listeners of Monocle 24's The Foreign Desk, he's been on that uh, a couple of times, uh, has been having a bit of a pop at Switzerland. A bit of a pop indeed. So in this weekend's Tagesanzeiger, Andrew, um, there's this interview in which he is indeed firing salvos at Bern. The Asian island state's foreign minister is accusing Switzerland of siding far too much with China and not showing enough neutrality and enough support for Taiwan. So Wu slams Bern's interpretation of the Chinese one country vision, saying the Swiss need to be less partisan. He said he hopes the Swiss government will work more with Taipei, given its vibrant democracy and its solid economy. Andrew Switzerland doesn't officially recognize Taiwan. I mean, of course, as we know, uh, worldwide fewer than two dozen nations do so. But Switzerland has strong business ties with the island and given its strong purchasing power, it's an attractive market for relatively expensive Swiss goods, like mainly watches, machinery, electronic products, chemical and pharmaceuticals. But, but Bern doesn't want to step on Beijing's toes by tightening ties too much and forging, say, a free trade area, as has been done with several other Asian uh, nations and bear in mind that the volume of trade between Switzerland and China is almost 10 times higher and worth almost 35 billion dollars. And historically, Andrew, Switzerland was one of the first countries to recognize the People's Republic of China back in 1950 when Swiss historians say Switzerland was isolated due to its neutral stance during World War II and was looking for ways to improve its international networking. Now, of course, nowadays, today, calls in Switzerland are increasing for the government to 
tighten its bond with Taipei, specifically as the promotion of democracy, its constitutional mandate in Switzerland, and holding referendums in the case of Taiwan is a particularly popular topic. But for the moment, Andrew Pundit say there's neither urgency nor pressure for Switzerland to pick a side necessarily. Uh, so even though Taipei would like that, it doesn't look like right now that's going to happen. Uh, Latika, I'll bring you in on this as well, because that, that dilemma uh, that Switzerland faces and that the Foreign Minister Joseph Wu is having a dig at them about is, of course, one that well most countries face uh, at some level or another. But it's it's going to become, if it hasn't already, I suspect, a particularly tricky one for our own mutual homeland of Australia, which is much closer to that neck of the woods. Yes, absolutely. And of course, we will in Australia be guided much by what the United States does, mm. I think. Uh, but it's a, a lot more frontline for Australia than it is for the United States. But this is something that all countries are grappling with. I mean, we saw last year, I think it was, Lithuania take a very strong stand in supporting Taiwan mm -hmm. to China's peril. So a lot of states are making this choice and not doing what Switzerland's doing. It would be a strange one, Latika, just where Australia is concerned if, if, if the crunch did come, because the United States being roughly China's economic and military equal can make grand gestures like, for example, well, the Speaker of the House of Representatives can go to Taiwan to metaphorically, if not literally, fly the flag, whereas Australia... We have to be, does Australia have to be a bit more mindful of how China's likely to react to any such gestures of support? I think a lot will come down to how Taiwan responds as well. You know, it's been very, uh, thanks to the immense character of Volodymyr Zelensky, mm. publics have been able, government's been able to galvanise their public around this very charismatic figure. Taiwan would need to do the same in order to guarantee the West's support like that and the public support for an intervention because China is not Russia. Our economy is 100% almost dependent on China, unlike Russia and a lot of other countries that have been able to stand up to it. So I think Taiwan itself is going to be a huge influencing factor in that. The United States, I mean, Biden has said very clearly that they would rush to Taiwan's defence. The question is if Taiwan could hold off a Chinese offensive in time for an allied response and an allied defence. Uh, and Juliet, just to, to go back to the Swiss response to uh, Joseph Wu's remarks, is there any sense that they are landing with either Swiss politicians or the Swiss public, or is Switzerland far enough away that it doesn't really see how Taiwan is actually its problem? No, I think there is a great awareness amongst the Swiss public and amongst the politicians that there has to be uh, something done, especially given uh, the, the whole position of Switzerland in, in mandating, you know, um, democracy and promoting democracy worldwide. And there is a great need for that. Uh, Latika, uh, you ha are there with a pile of papers, uh, newspapers that is, right here on the desk. Um, attentive listeners might have heard them rustle. Um, what has leapt out of, out of them at you? Well, Andrew, I was struck by your conversation with Tyler in Tokyo because on the front page of the, the Sunday Telegraph is this wonderful matte cartoon of the rail passenger standing on the empty platform and the caption, there's no rail strike today, all cancellations are running normally, <laughs> which I think just about sums up the mood here in Britain. Uh, name me a service, it's probably on strike. Uh, the postal service, nurses last week, uh, paramedics are about to go on strike, rail cancellations have been immense. The rail strikes have really, uh, I think, caused the most disruption to people. 
Uh, and today they're carrying a very interesting interview with the head of the defence staff, um, and that's Admiral Tony Radican, who is saying that bringing in the military to cover for these strikes should not be the default for the government. Uh, and it makes the rather interesting point that a, a soldier of a rank of private is earning around £21,000 a year compared to a paramedic who they'll soon be standing in for, who makes uh, around £27,000. Uh, £1,000 per year. Obviously, both very low wages indeed, but uh, the difference, of course, is that soldiers can't strike. They're legally bound not to strike. And what we have is in the UK is this scenario coming up where border force is about to go on strike over the Christmas break, leaving uh, air passenger travel in in a perilous situation. I'm I'm, I'm pretty excited about trying to fly to Melbourne from Gatwick on Friday. I I mean, good luck, Andrew. Good luck. I mean, it's going to be a Russian roulette for a lot of people this Christmas. Surely to goodness, though, also I keep telling myself the absence of border force will make it more difficult to pe- for people getting into the country, whereas I am trying to leave. Leave, yes. They're, they're not so concerned with who leaves the country here. That's true. Uh, Andrew, best of luck to you. When you come back, however, let's see what <laughs> the situation is. <laughs> if you can enter the country, will you be able to get a, a rail a service from Gatwick or Heathrow back to your uh, home city? I'm not sure. Um, and this is a real winter of discontent for the British people. I mean, it's hard to meet anyone now who hasn't had something disrupted by mm. a rail strike. Uh, I, I did want to ask further about that, though, this this plan that the British <laughs> government has to send the military out to cover some basic functions. I, I can never quite decide whether British governments think that works well for them or not, because on the one hand, ideally, uh, if you are a you know, civilian democracy, the appearance of large numbers of troops on the streets is usually a sign that things are not going optimally. But also, I think the British people are actually quite reassured by people in khaki. The armed forces are actually quite well thought of. Well, I, th- I think there was a big surge of the military use during the Olympics, wasn't there, in mm. London? It predates my time living here, but I do seem to remember that. It is a tricky question. And, you know, in Australia, they're having the same conversation because the army keeps getting caught up to deal with natural disasters, mm. which, of course, increased in tempo in the last three to four years, bushfires and floods and things. And the government's response is to keep calling up the military to come and reconstruct towns and, and help out. Now, in the first two or three days, that might sound like a sensible idea. But then you get to the question of, well, hang on, doesn't the military actually have a job? Is its job <laughs> to continually cover for everybody else's job? And that is exactly the point that Admiral Radican says today. He says, actually, we are quite busy. We're not spare capacity for governments to rely on, and we do have our own jobs to be doing. Of course, keep in mind that one of the things that the UK is doing uh, continually is training Ukrainians how to mm-hmm. fight against Russia here on UK soil, and then those Ukrainians are going home and taking those skills back to the battlefield, we should say, with um, some increasing momentum and success. So it is a real conundrum, not just for the government, of course, for the public looking around and seeing the military do their jobs. I think in this context, however, uh, I'm not really sure how the balance of public opinion ends up here. I sense there is a lot of, uh, not so much a dispute with the, the the ask of the unions, I think there's a lot of support. People would like to see them get paid more. But striking at Christmas, over Christmas, in the lead up to Christmas, I do sense a lot of public uh, anxiety and discontent about that. Well, yes and no. I, I always think at moments like this, and I thought it 
you know, during the pandemic Christmases as well, as well that the, the coverage focused, and quite rightly, on those people who were being deprived of, you know, their usual Christmas with the family, etc. But there is out there, I think, there is a, a silent and quite content minority going, oh, no, I won't be able to spend Christmas <laughs> with the family. How terrible. I'm just going to have to stay at home and watch something on television and maybe read a book and go for a bit of a walk. Oh, no, how awful. We, oh, ne- look, we, we never hear from those people. Look, I wouldn't be adverse to using that myself, I must say. <laughs> <laughs> um, Juliet, we want to bring you back in. Um, news from your previous beat uh, as the Vatican. Uh, the Catholic News Agency has done a sort of one of those little factoid lists of four facts that you may not have known about Pope Francis, whose birthdays, whose birthday rather was yesterday. But it should actually be five facts, because the thing I didn't know until I read this was that I share a birthday with Pope Francis. Not you li- have to be kidding. I do. Not literally the same year, I hasten to stress. I was added that detail. Yeah, I, not that there's anything wrong with being 86, but I am mercifully away off that just at the moment. But yes, uh, both, it turns out, Pope Francis and myself, born December 17th. That fact uh, unaccountably has not made the Catholic News Agency's list, but what else did they want to tell us? <laughs> well, happy belated birthday, Thank you. Andrew. I will ask you off-air what you do and don't share uh, <laughs> in terms of piety with the Pope. But anyway, so this is his 10th birthday as Pope. Now, we all know that he has had some health issues. You might not know that his trip to South Sudan and the Democratic Republic of Congo had to be rescheduled because of the limp that he has and because of his knee problems. And anyway, that is rescheduled for early next year. So watch this space for that trip. Now, you might not know that this was a year of retirement rumours. Yes, he made a quip in September when asked if he'd attend World Youth Day next summer in Lisbon. And they said, um, is the Pope going to be in Lisbon next summer? And he answered, the Pope is going to go, whether it's Francis or whether it's John the 24th. That's to be seen, but the Pope is going. So might it be his successor? Was he referring to that? And just a few months previously, he told journalists he's open to the possibility of retiring. As we know, Benedict XVI um, sort of opened that path and smoothed that path towards not necessarily having to die in office. But um, it's it's rumours, it's rumours. Uh, thirdly, he has no intention of going back to his homeland to this day. Despite travelling to 59 countries as Pope, he's never been on a papal trip to his native Argentina. His non-Italian predecessors both visited their native Poland and Germany. So this is a first and it's not like he hasn't been on pastoral visits to nearby Latin American countries. And just a quick aside, Andrew, he definitely, uh, we definitely know that the Pope will be um, in Argentina this afternoon in spirit as Mm. his native country take on France in Qatar. God knows France, Mm -hmm. um, Francis is a huge soccer fan. The Argentinians have God on their side, but let's see what La France manages (laughs) to do. And a final note, um, you, uh, you, you might not know this, Andrew, and I don't know how you celebrated your birthday yesterday, who you invited to your party, but the Pope always uses his birthday to focus on others. And so when he turned 80, he partied at a breakfast for the homeless his, in his dining room. And the next year, he threw a pizza party for six ch- sick children. And this year, he celebrates his 86th with an awards ceremony with the religious, religious group founded by none other than Mother Teresa. 
Okay, well, he's just making me feel bad at that point. My, How did my, you celebrate? Tell uh, us. Th- there were no such charitable outreaches on my part. I, I went for a bit of a walk and then had some dinner and some drinks, and it was all terrifically pleasant. But I don't think any of the less fortunate benefited from that in any way. But that's why. That's okay. That's, that's why. Okay. That's why he's Pope and I'm not. Uh, not and, yet. Um, not uh, yet. Well, I mean, well. <laughs> As you suggested, he he is open to being succeeded, though I think uh, I would be a, a long shot for the role. But uh, just going back to one of the things you mentioned and, and the possibility of his retirement, because he raises that when he talked about not going to Argentina. And I'm just interested in that, because as, as you pointed out, previous popes have generally done the, the, the trip back to the homeland at some point. Are we clear on why he's unkeen to pitch up in Argentina as Pope, he, he, because the, the quote he talks about, he, he says, you know, I will be Pope whether in office or emeritus. So, again, raising the possibility of, of standing down. And in Rome, I won't return to Argentina. That sounds kind of like, unless something has gone askew in the translation, that he's he's upset with Argentina about something. Yes, yes, you could perhaps say that. Cynics do say that uh, he, he, he doesn't have that many friends, perhaps, politically in Argentina. He was known to be extremely um, active at, at a political level, very much uh, on the on the socialist side. And there are those who, who say that perhaps that's one of the reasons he doesn't want to go back at the moment, because he wouldn't necessarily be welcomed with open arms by everyone on the political spectrum back in Buenos Aires. Uh, and Latika, to come back to you and your heap of newspapers there, you spotted a story about ice cream parlours and what they tell us about demographics or what demographics tell us about ice cream parlours. I forget which way round it was. I, I love this story. It's in the Sunday Times today, written by Jack Clover. And it picks up on what you'll see if you happen to be strolling around Covent Garden anytime soon. And that is this sudden explosion of ice cream parlours. Now, I find it bizarre how many people go and eat ice cream in a freezing cold country, it's personally. Not, and it's not really the time of year for it just now. Well, you might say that, Andrew, but who are you to say that? Because well, well, in fact, yesterday <laughs> I would have eaten ice cream to warm me up. Right, OK. Well, there we go. We found our metric. Uh, there has been a huge explosion of uh, ice cream parlours all across central London, but it's also spreading across the UK. There's now 32 of them just within half a mile of Covent Garden itself. And yes, on one hand, this is about Instagram. On the other hand, there's something far more fascinating taking place, and it's a nice collision between millennials who are increasingly choosing not to drink. Uh, It's the economy is stupid because the recession means that people are choosing a night out at the pub a little less, uh, and ice creams are a low-cost way to, to come together. But also, interestingly, it's the increase in our migrant composition, which mm-hmm. means many more people are not drinking. And youngsters still want to go out and have a bit of fun, get together in a group, take their photos for social media and show themselves together doing something nice. And what do you do? You go and get sugar. You don't necessarily <laughs> get alcohol. And so that is what they say is behind this revival of, of the ice cream parlour. And I feel like there's a bit of retro back to the future here because this is something that maybe 
before our childhood childhoods, Andrew, without asking you your age and belated <laughs> happy birthday, it would have been something that featured in our parents' lives and now is, is coming full generational circle again. Well, the thing is that the Australian tradition of the milk bar does kind of exist and that wasn't necessarily an ice cream parlour as such, but more a dispenser of uh, milkshakes and associated comestibles. I was never a milkshake fan. I was a thick shake fan. Do you want to explain to our listeners so what the milkshake is? So milkshake is just with the milkshake. And having said I'm not much of an ice cream fan, the thick shake is the best way to uh, imbibe uh, ice cream because it's mixed with a little uh, ice cream. You have to have a giant thick straw, of course, to suck up a thick shake. <laughs> uh, and Juliet in Zurich, basically in the interest of padding this conversation out for about another 90 seconds about be- before I do the headlines at 9.30... Um, has there been a noticeable boom in ice cream parlours in Switzerland or basically anything you can tell us pertaining to Switzerland and ice cream? <laughs> I can tell you about Italy and ice cream. We don't do thick shakes. We don't suck the ice cream out of fat straws. We just take a little gelato on a cone and walk around in the sunshine admiring the beautiful architecture. But, but Juliet, in very, very many instances that I can recall from growing up, it was Italians who were running milk bars in Australia. Are you suggesting that they were knowingly dumbing down the product for so. these boneheaded antipodean so. larrikins who just do not appreciate the finer things. Is that what you're calling us? There's two uh, of us sitting here. Potentially, yes. <laughs> I've never heard of a thick shake in my life. What's that even in Italian? Well, we've discussed it here. This is wonderful. <laughs> that is excellent news. Uh, our work here is not, however, quite done. We will have more from Juliet Lindley and Latika Burke later on. But now here is that recap of the day's other main stories. Peru's new president is refusing to resign as the country's political crisis continues. President Dina Buluati is asking Congress instead to call early elections to end deadly protests which have followed the ousting of her predecessor, President Pedro Castillo, who tried to sack Congress before it sacked him. Ukraine has chosen its 2023 Eurovision entrant after a show broadcast from a Kiev metro station repurposed as a bomb shelter. Pop duo Tvorchi will represent Ukraine in Liverpool in May. Ukraine were bookmakers' favourites even before their entrant was announced. And the 2022 World Cup final, which will be watched by Pope Francis and many others, kicks off five and a half hours from now at Lusail Stadium in Qatar. France and Argentina are the last two teams still standing, each featuring one of the best players of recent memory, respectively Kylian Mbappe and Lionel Messi. Messi plans to retire from international football after the match whatever the result. You are listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Andrew Muller, and I'm happy to say now that Hani Bellassine joins us from Paris. Uh, Hani is the owner of the concept store Bonjour Jacob. A few steps north from Place de la République in Paris, they not only sell delicious coffee, but have the newest magazines, records and books on offer. Bonjour, how is business this morning? Bonjour, good morning. <laughs> yeah, it's good, it's good. I'm, I'm hidden from, from the Parisian cold, uh, surrounded by books and magazine uh, at Bonjour Jacobs. 
Uh, we were talking to you this morning, or will be talking to you this morning, about some last-minute suggestions. And uh, actually, on the subject of last-minute, first of all, I, I am somebody who still can recall having worked in retail in the last week before Christmas. Are most of your customers actually fairly organised? Have they done this stuff in advance, or are you anticipating everybody turning up on Christmas Eve? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, at the last chance and in the last the last week before uh, Christmas, and uh, and uh, as usually, we like to to, to present for our customer uh, a new and especially independent project uh, for Christmas, and to 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 have the best gift to offer. And, and so, what are you especially keen on this year, or what do you have in your store that you think would make particularly good gifts? Yeah, let me let me start in with with the perfect gift for all coffee and uh, interior design lover. You know, at Bonjour Jacob, we are uh, uh, coffee lovers and print lovers. Uh, the, the the title of this uh, book is Slofter uh, Volume Cafe. Uh, it's in English, uh, edited by an Australian studio, and offer us a world tour of the best coffee places in the world. It's the best gift for all coffee lovers. Uh, lovers. Uh, and these are coffee places, not the kind of suburban milk bars we were just discussing. The, these are these. Is it largely full of Australian cafes? You mentioned that this is by an Australian uh, publisher, and obviously Australians are incredibly pleased with their coffee and their cafes. Exactly, but but for this book, you have all uh, places from all the world. You have from uh, from Paris, from London, from Berlin, and from Dubai. Uh, all best places to get a coffee uh, in the world, not only Australian. Let's talk about a magazine called Sloft, which is, I, I don't know if they were intentionally going for the, uh, the the homonym with Sloth there, not that I'm wishing to suggest that their publishing schedule is untowardly dilatory, but they publish every six months. So this is, this is slow publishing in Excelsis, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. And we're still in the world of architecture and interior design. Uh, and Sloft, you know, the name is, is, is composed, is Small Loft. Uh, and this is the best gift for uh, all people who have the small places uh, to live uh, in Paris, in London, or all other uh, big city. Uh, this is an independent French project. And uh, why I want to talk about this this morning, because it's the, releasing the third issue and uh, finally is in English. Uh, the first and the second issue is only in French, and today Slav try to uh, to go um, forward and to uh, to travel uh, for another country. Uh, this issue is in English, and Slav is a magazine uh, that takes us inside inside the most inspiring homes uh, and fascinating uh, exchange with designer, architects, and uh, just people like you and me uh, who try to get the best interior. Uh, I mean, it's 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 hard for me to do full justice to the difference between the interior of my house and the interior of houses which are likely to end up uh, in magazines like Sloft. But do you think there is something actually accessible there? Can can anybody make their home look as nice as these ones do? Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> let, let me maybe uh, talk in, in the third. The third selection is um, for us is a Finister, uh, and Finister 
uh, it's the French region and uh, is another thing. Uh, and there's a new uh, the release party, I think it's uh, two weeks ago. And this project is only about uh, uh, is uh, make us travel and discover uh, the riches of, uh, an, uh, of an incredible rural and oceanic uh, territory. Uh, it's in French, uh, and the book is in French and in English, and uh, it's, it's it's a real travel in this uh, region. Uh, the name is Finisterre, uh, and the most of people know uh, Paris, know Marseille, know Lyon, but uh, uh, we don't. We never try to to find another small and very beautiful places like Finisterre. And uh, this very beautiful book. And there was another semi-annual uh, magazine you wanted to talk about. This is Grain, but it's not actually about grain. Yeah, exactly. Grain, uh, that means in, in, in English, beans. Uh, it's like <laughs> beans. Uh, but it, it's, um, I, I liked a lot this, this magazine. I, I think it's, uh, it's the, um, the most of my uh, Christmas gift is grain this year uh, because um, we have everything. Uh, in this, in this uh, magazine, you have everything that we love uh, at Bonjour Jacob. It's focused in the sample, uh, every, everyday things. Uh, but that changed the world. You have a lot of uh, exchange with uh, ceramists, with uh, curator, with uh, artisan, and and we have a lot of inspiration and a lot of uh, vision of the of the future of our world. And they like it a lot. This. Uh, do, do you notice a seasonal aspect to sales of interior and lifestyle magazines? Is this something people think about more at Christmas as they're spending spending more time indoors? Yeah, I think I think because uh, in the last uh, last month we opened our new store in Printemps uh, Osman in Paris, and I think people now think that is is the is the best uh, thing for, for for Christmas and the best gift. And, Hani, just before we let you go, yeah. feel free to remind our listeners where they can find you. You can find us at, uh, we have three addresses in Paris, uh, Canal Saint-Martin, Saint-Germain, and Printemps Osman. And the new one uh, in Annecy, if you go for, uh, for ski, uh, you should find Bonjour Jacob uh, at Annecy and bonjourjacob.com. You will find all our location. And we'll be happy to receive you. Honey Balasine, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. Do stay tuned. Monocle's December-January double issue includes our annual soft power survey that ranks the nations that have committed to winning friends with good diplomacy, cultural hits, and even national cuisine. And there are some big surprises in our top 20. Beyond the survey, we look at which Icelandic brands are going international, meet the artists in Baghdad who want their nation to be defined by more than turmoil, and return to Kyiv to speak with Ukraine's foreign minister. This is a war for identity. This is the war between Russia as a state and the people of Ukraine. I think it's impossible to win a war against the people. And we've packed plenty of fun in too, with our roundups of the best bookstores, a look at the revival of the stationery shop, and our list of New Year's resolutions for 2023. Order your copy of Monocle's December-January issue today or subscribe to get instant access online.
You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. I'm Andrew Muller, and let's bring our panellists back in now. I'm joined here in the studio by Latika Burke and from Zurich by Juliet Lindley. Um, Juliet, first of all, I think this is probably the part of the show at which we are going to have to resign ourselves to the Harry and Meghan discourse somewhat. Is, is this actually consuming the attention of the Swiss public? I think it's consuming all of our attention, probably starting mainly with us journalists and our secret um, our secret late night reading is possibly the Daily Mail, but no one will admit it because that's not proper press. So I'm not going to give you a little press review of what the Daily Mail is saying, but I would love to ask Latika and you who are, of course, on home turf on this front. Like well, steady on. <laughs> well, so Latika, no, the silence from the palace is deafening, some would say. So we're all kind of waiting to see if and how they'll react. Now, the feeling is obviously the House of Windsor has to respond somehow to these bombshells, or maybe they have privately and it hasn't been leaked. I mean, is that the, a thought? I mean, Latika, Juliet does make kind of a point here in that if there were a series of frankly unimaginable mishaps, and I'm not for one minute wishing any of them would occur, I mean, Prince Harry technically could end up being our head of state. Oh, my I mean, goodness. It would be, like I said, it's not likely, but, you know, funnier things have happened. I think by that time, should that have occurred, the House of Commons would have united in stripping him of his title. <laughs> uh, look, it is. it has been a, a really interesting... Um, uh, I guess we should say contrast to how the Queen dealt with the last time Harry and Meghan went on, let's say, US television and uh, started dumping on the palace... Then the Queen put out the statement, recollections may vary. This was in relation to Meghan saying that an unnamed member of the royal family had inquired about how dark Archie's skin might be when he was born. At that point, he was unborn. This week, zero. Zero on paper. But we're seeing plenty in public. And mm. that, I think, is the key difference. And I actually think it's been very artful from the palace. Um, there was this, uh, it may have gone over a few people's heads, but I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to go there and spell this out. Go right ahead. So there was this caroling event uh, at Westminster Abbey and uh, the Princess of Wales, Catherine, turns up in this beautiful burgundy coat. And then about half a dozen of the other royals who all turned up, all turned up wearing burgundy coats. And this was actually quite interesting because Meghan had said in her Netflix documentary that no one wears colour. She couldn't wear colour when she was uh, the Duchess of Sussex operating as a working role in, in the UK because you couldn't outshine somebody more senior than you, a woman in the royal family. And so, the Queen's whole thing was wearing bright exactly. colours. Exactly. So you had to, she said she always was wearing beige and camel. Now, a quick scan of photographs may suggest that that's not quite true, but who are we to nitpick? <laughs> so there was this incredible show of unified colour to show uh, their solidarity with each other. And of course, there were all smiles and, and very happy faces for the cameras at that event. Then on Thursday night, we saw this great clip of the king attending a Hanukkah event uh, and on the dance floor, which I must say, I mean, he's not quite the Pope's age, Juliet, but he <laughs> he, he is an older man and he did uh, cut a fairly sprightly figure on the dance floor. So the, the palace seems to be intent on projecting their response or their non-response to this in a very visual way. And I do think it's uh, it's been a, a clever tactic from them.
Hey, Juliet, seriously, is is the Swiss press actually consumed by this? Are, are Swiss people uh, watching the Netflix series in their droves? I mean, I, it's, I just that, it's just that Switzerland <laughs> has this reputation, as you will be aware, of being an extremely sensible, if not downright stolid country. And I, for one, might have hoped that you would have risen magnificently above this. <laughs> no, I, let's let's put it into perspective. Yeah, I, I do have a Swiss friend who said that she was in tears watching Megan and she felt so moved. But that was one. A lot of people are just getting on with their life and no, the Swiss press is not all over the story. But um, I'd say that my journalistic friends are perhaps and being very cynical indeed. But I was just going to just jump into the Vatican footage um, to look for some footage in their archive of the Pope breakdancing since you just mentioned Prince Charles (laughs) looking very sprightly. I'll come up with that and I'll put it on the Monaco website shortly. Excellent. I, I, I mean, Latika, as Juliet was pointing out, Australia does have a bit more of a, a dog in this fight. Seems like the wrong metaphor at a number of levels. But has it been a big deal in Australia? And I guess more to the point, if there is a, a sensible angle to this, is it prompting any more of a conversation along the lines of, is this really the cleverest way to choose our head of state, leave it up to accident (laughs) of birth among this mob of weirdos in a castle on the other side of the world? Look, before this Netflix series and after the Queen's death, um, support for the monarchy actually increased in Australia, which is certainly not music to Republicans' ears. And the, and the, the Labor government there would like to see a Republic referendum in its second term if it should have one. I'm not convinced that would get up at this stage in, in time. Is there interest in Harry and Meghan? Well, Juliet, is the Pope a Catholic? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. My goodness, I had to live blog this Harry and Meghan Netflix series. Episodes one, two, three, and then a week later, four, five, six. So you've watched all six hours of this? I have watched all six hours. Because the thing is, Juliet mentioned a friend of hers in tears. I suspect I would be as well, but in the manner... You would be too. Manner of board two. You would be curled up in the fetal position, Andrew. Let's be honest. But full no, disclosure, I, I watched it on double speed. I have to admit, it was so <laughs> slow. No, I did. I did. Oh, my God, Latika, now you're thinking that's not good. Uh, double speed for the first three episodes, I can understand. The last three were a little more interesting. They needed to be taken more slowly. Is what but, um, I have but, to re-watch But to answer the, the central question here, the readership of this was huge. I mean, Australians like to pretend, particularly our readers, they like to say, oh, oh, oh we, we don't care about the royals. Oh, like gosh, it's all trivial. It's all this, gossip. This is, this it's so your, shallow. This is your impression of me you're doing but, now, isn't it? But the readership and the clicks say completely different stories. So I think sometimes a few people tell fibs about just how interested they are or not in the royals. And it really doesn't get better than this. I mean, this is one of the first times we've had a real uh, close to the grind uh, family member come out and say some really ugly truths about how the family operates. And I thought about his own brother. Yeah, Harry's sexual claim about the households all briefing against each other. Well, that's quite sick and that's quite serious. And yes, that would damage somebody who was caught up in that and is born into a family and looks up and goes, hang on, what what the heck has just happened? My <laughs> my mother died as a result of this. I'm screwed as a result of this. I want to get out and tell you all along the way just how bad it was. I think there is a lot of compassion and sympathy for Harry still on that front. Whether that extends to Megan, not sure. 
And I think they've done a smart thing in releasing most of it around Christmas time, a period in which many people are looking around them at the people they're related to and thinking, oh, my God. <laughs> uh, um, we, we, we are you speaking from experience, Andy? <laughs> no, you I, seem to have made this point a couple of times no, this episode. Yeah, I, 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 are you hoping that the flight doesn't take off? No, I, I, I'm very much hoping the flight does take <laughs> off. I, I, despite everything I may have uttered, intimated or hinted at during this episode, quietly fond uh, of most of the people I'm related to. Um, Juliet, there was one other story I did want to address. We trailed it a bit at the top. This was the increasing pressure, perhaps, on the British Museum uh, to cough up the Elgin marbles or the Parthenon marbles, depending (laughs) on how you see this thing, because the Vatican is returning its chunks. Indeed. The Pope is returning three chunks of the sculptures that they've had for 200 years at the Vatican Museums. And announcing the decision, though, Andrew, the Vatican termed the gesture a donation from Francis to the Orthodox Christian Archbishop of Athens and Greece as a sign of the pontiff's desire to, quote, follow in the ecumenical path of truth. Now, controversially, it seems, the Holy See wants to emphasise that this was not a state-to-state return. So the wording is being seen by some as a way of avoiding creating a precedent that could affect other valuable items inside the Vatican museums, which, as you know, are are huge, and they've got so many um, precious items in them. And as pressure is growing, though, worldwide, if you want to return looted artefacts and ones obtained under questionable colonial circumstances, circumstances to Indigenous groups and former Western colonies. But so far, as you know, Andrew, the British Museum has pledged not to dismantle its Parthenon collection. Let's see if this makes a change in that. Just to follow that up, Juliet, it is a weird, uh, I guess, double dimension to everything the Vatican does. Uh, As regular attendees of pub quizzes will well know, it actually is a sovereign state. So uh, are they here being very careful not to look like it's doing the thing as other sovereign states have recently done of giving stuff back? Because is there, in fact, at the Vatican a certain amount of concern that if if it's presented in that way, then they might get quite a long queue of people turning up on the doorstep and saying, well, where's our stuff? I think that is precisely it. And they do have a lot of very precious um, items in there that could have to perhaps be given back in droves. So, yeah. Because this is a thing that comes up as well in Australia, Latika, and just in the last year or so, we've made a program on the Foreign Desk about this, specifically hooked to the Benin Bronzes, and we did a big debate uh, in the magazine about the Parthenon Marbles, and subscribers to Monocle Magazine, as you all should be, can of course uh, look that up online, but... I mean, in Australia in particular, it's complicated at a number of levels because Australia has been asking, especially Australia's Indigenous communities, for stuff back that was taken in colonial circumstances. But Australia is also kind of a colonial project itself. Yeah, it is a quandary. Um, I think, though, we are only going to see this start to take place in a trickle and then I think a dam and that's Mm. the concern for the British Museum. George Osborne, who is the chair of the British Museum, has been making all sorts of noises now for a good 18 months about handing or loaning these back. I think that becomes tricky territory because once you start loaning things back, when do they ever come back? And I think maybe never. (laughs) But I I do think that the way that uh, social movements are going around this, it's only going to start happening. Uh, And just finally, uh, for our panellists, before we let you both go, uh, acutely aware that this is the last Monocle Sunday before actual Christmas Day. uh, And on that front, I do want to just 
unabashedly and shamelessly plug the current edition of The Foreign Desk, which is The Foreign Desk's Christmas special. It is Finland-themed, uh, and we speak to Santa Actual Claus, a former president of Finland, an ambassador in the sauna. Uh, we have a whole thing on incredibly depressing Christmas carols and a choir of shouting men. It literally has everything. Um, but just before you both go, and Juliet, I'll ask you first of all, what are your Christmas plans? What will you be doing? That's such a good question. I will be in Switzerland and I will be making a gigantic goose for Christmas lunch for my mother-in-law, brother-in-law and my parents and my family. Uh, and Latika? I will be staying in London and we're probably going to be binging on White Lotus. <laughs> uh, which I should suggest is a, I well, emphasize rather, is a, a television program that, uh, unless it is, that's not like street slang for something it's else. It's definitely but, a okay. Netflix show. <laughs> Don't worry, uh, Andrew. I mean, I, 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 I've known Christmases to drive me to similar... No, uh, but anyway, no, I... I if, if all goes well, if I actually get out of the country, I, I will be spending Christmas Day in Melbourne. And hopefully some warmer weather. Uh, yeah, and then and then the plan is the races at Sandown on Boxing Day and then possibly a day of the test match after that, uh, if I get out of Gatwick. Uh, Latika Burke and Juliet Lindley, thank you both for joining us. Finally on today's programme, here is my take on what, if anything, the past seven days have taught us. We learned this week that it is maybe actually possible to feel an amount of sympathy for Russia's soldiers deployed in Ukraine. Over and above, obviously, the fact that they're cold, badly supplied, poorly equipped, ineptly led, and pawns in a crime as vast as it is futile. We learned that, who knows, perhaps as a consequence of all of the preceding, it had been noted that morale in the trenches was ebbing somewhat, and we learned that someone at Russia's defence ministry had had an idea for fixing this. We learned that, rather regrettably, the idea was not calling the whole thing off, getting everybody home for Christmas, enacting a swift and efficient coup d'etat and then overseeing a seamless transition to functional democracy and letting somebody sane have a lash at running the joint, but was, broadly, this. Yes. We learned that the Ministry had decided that what would really cheer up the troops at the front was not winter clothing, flak jackets, rations, ammunition, competent commanders and an honourable mission, but balalaikas, harmonicas and accordions. We learned that the Ministry, and we checked the date, it wasn't Orthodox Fool's Day or anything, believe that such instruments will, and we quote, support morale and unity, inspire heroic deeds, and moral and psychological relief among Russia's invading army. We learned that, accordingly, municipal authorities in St. Petersburg have opened collection points at which citizens may donate unwanted accordions. Unwanted accordions. Imagine. <coughs> we learned that, basically, Russia's Ministry of Defence is now the new stooge in the old joke about the accordionist who leaves his accordion in his car when he goes to the shops and returns to find the window has been smashed and there are ten accordions. Here all week. Try the stroganoff. That'll do. Mallet. They can always burn the accordions. 
and indeed should. Elsewhere on the Eastern Front, we learn that Poland, if we can extrapolate sweeping conclusions from a single somewhat silly news story, and why not, it's our monologue, appears keen to position itself as a rival to Florida, the and finally state, as a supplier of the kind of inexplicable idiocy which is of greatly welcomed assistance in padding out whimsical news reviews such as this. So cheers, Poland. We learned that in Poland's northwest, near a village we are not going to amuse you all by attempting to pronounce the tyres of 21 vehicles in a meat warehouse parking lot had been slashed by a miscreant dressed as a Christmas tree. Let's hear it for the detailed evocation of the sound of someone dressed as a Christmas tree slashing tyres there. We have not learned as yet of either the identity or the motives of the branch-bedecked ne'er-do-well. Yes, yes, police are stumped. Hey! More happily, we learn that there is emu news. Retrieve, if you will, from the vault. Emu Strut by 1980s Australian bluegrass sensations The Flying Emus, winner of Best Instrumental at the 1987 Australian Country Music Awards. Because listeners who have been with us a while, and thank you, may recall that circa July 2020 we learned that a pub in the Queensland hamlet of Yarraka had been compelled to formally disbar two emus, known locally as Kevin and Carol, who had been barging into the premises, knocking things over, getting in the way, making a mess, and snatching toast from the toaster. We were, at the time, unable to rise above a tawdry joke about how it wouldn't have been the first time that a pub in Queensland had been obliged to eject malodorous and unruly patrons, but what are we going to do? It was right there. Yeah. Anyway, we learned subsequent to their banishment that Kevin and Carol had taken the hint and vanished into the fathomless outback. But we learned this week that Kevin and Carol are back. The pair have returned to Yarraka, along with evidence of what they have been up to in their absence, specifically a brood of four emu chicks. Emu chicks are extremely cute, up until the point that they grow into the infamously querulous, crotchety, toast-thieving creatures which spawned them. Anyway, not only is this a heartwarming tale in and of itself, it tees us up nicely to play out with some appropriately Christmas and large flightless bird-related music. Here is Chris... Rhea? Come on, like Rhea, another large flightless bird native to South America. This is an excellent joke and not, as you unlettered morons appear to believe, a bad one. Oh, I can't wait to see those faces. And that is it for today's edition of Monocle on Sunday. Uh, thanks to all our guests today, Tyler Brule, Latika Burke, Juliet Lindley and Hani Bellasine. And while I'm here yet another plug for the current Christmas-themed edition of The Foreign Desk, which does feature Santa Actual Claus, the one, the only, the genuine, interviewed right here at Midori House at last weekend's Monocle Christmas Market. You can download that straight after this uh, from our website or wherever, wherever fine podcasts may be found. Uh, today's programme, Monocle on Sunday, was produced by Desiree Bandley. Our studio manager was Nora Huell. I'm Andrew Muller. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and 
and have an excellent Christmas.